love this music. Woo! If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. Welcome everybody, and here we are again, approaching our 100th show, I can't believe it, we're like two or three shows away. Welcome to Hollywood Godfather, with my co-host, my co-writer, Pat Picciarelli. Evening everybody. And our millennium, Megan Horan. Horan for Megan. How you doing, Gianni? We're doing great. You know, we, we've had inquiries about people and uh, my relationship with the, not, let me clear that up before we start rumors, not relationship, relationship, but my friendship with uh, Johnny Agnelli, who's been a good friend of mine, and he used to, rumors are out, they knew I had a house there, but I have to correct them. It wasn't my house, it was Chateau Benefiat, because he owned Fiat Motor Company. And one of the questions that would come from a mailbag was that most people didn't realize that Mario Puzo wrote the first and second Superman, and he wrote Marlon Brando as the father. And when Agnelli heard that, that the film was gonna be exhibited at the Cannes Film Festival, he wanted to have a party with them. And I said, well, you know, you never know with Brando, what, what, what mood he's in, and what he's wearing, but um, him being such a, an avid fan and had no budget, he threw parties up there, it was amazing. Chateau Benefiat, just so for our audience who don't know the south of France, it's just out of Nice in St. Paul de Vence, on the way to Cannes. And he had limousines just shuttling day and night, going back and forth from the corset up there. And we had a dinner party for Mario and Marlon Brando, which, you know. What's that? Showed up? Oh, sure, they showed up. Brando. Oh, Brando was there. Well, you know, he's a strange guy, so, you know. Oh, no, he showed up, and, it was, I mean, well, he was being honored, number one, and it's funny because I don't know how many people know it. We know it because we did our research, but Brando had maybe 15 to 18 minutes on screen, got paid $3 million. S Steve Reeves... I mean, that's Steve Reeves. Um, Christopher Reeves. Christopher Reeves. I went to the, the weightlifter. You know how <laughs> old I am now. Steve Reeves played Hercules. Do you know that? Did you know that? <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I played Hercules. Remember that, Pat? Steve Reeves? Mr. Universe? Yep. Okay. I had to coax that out of you. Anyway. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, Christopher Reeves played the starring role on screen most of the time of the film, he got $250,000. Not the second one, I'm sure he got a lot more money, but the first one, that's all he got. 
But, uh, no, I mean, Brando not only showed up, but I had my boat there at the time, too, which I tried to do anytime the film festival was there. But we had an unbelievable time, and the stars and the people that showed up. And uh, Agnelli was involved with Balafusai, a, a, a big fragrance that my friend Erwin Alfin represented throughout the world. And to show the class and style, Hermes sent a, a scarf, a handkerchief for each man at his place setting, and a two-ounce bottle of bottle of Versailles for the women. And I, I was so funny because Marlon, I'd seen Marlon looking around the table, you know, and we were all going outside now for cocktails, and he was snatching the handkerchiefs that were left behind. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. But, the, I mean, the things that went on over there during that time, and the one thing, I, I just finished a film called Lepke, where I played Albert Anastasia, and Tony Curtis played Louis Buchalter, and uh, who was Louis Lepke, and they created Murder, Inc. And I always heard of all these rumors about Tony Curtis being bisexual, and the same thing with Marlon Brando. I mean, that's Hollywood days then, I think, uh, there were was so many other rumors to, about Rock Hudson, leading men that were both bisexual. And we had a, 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 an area of the pool area reserved for Brando's special guest with security, you know, that, that everybody just mobbed the guy. And when Tony Curtis arrived, I shuffled them right out there, and they greeted each other, which I, I could see it still vividly, they got into a, a, lop lick, a lick lock, lock for <laughs> 10 minutes. I couldn't believe it. They were kissing on the lips. So I must, they must have been close friends years ago. <laughs> Only to find out they, they studied with Stella Adler as an acting coach in New York. So that relationship started off very early in life. But... It, it, it never ceased to amaze me about being around that life, you know, movie stars and women and it's, you know, not that I have anything about bisexual, but uh, it's crazy. But there were some of the things that went on that weekend. Oh, Pujo. Right. What's that? What was your relationship with Mario Pujo? My relationship, because obviously the Godfather, I knew Mario for years and years, even before the Godfather, because he was a degenerate gambler. Most people didn't know this. This guy was broke. And when he, when he did the Godfather, he was broke. And then the money he made from the Godfather, he was in my club that I opened the Tropicana Hotel because Frank Costello and Joe Kennedy owned that. And I felt bad for the guy because he was, and we played Baccarat like a fool and just loved it. And even in Khan that time, I mean, he, he was getting big money now for screenplays. But this guy was a, a major, major player. The thing that we had in common and still do, well, he died now, but we, he and I never wore socks. And I never did. 
I mean, 12 degree weather in New York, and he was living in Long Island. He never wore socks. When I met him, I said, you know, you don't wear socks? No, I never wear socks. I said, and I loved him. I said, Greg, give me a hug. It was like, he was like a big bear anyway. <laughs> you were like soulmates in that aspect. Yeah. was <laughs> a great literary writer. I mean, this guy, looking at him, talking to him, I would imagine, I spoke to the guy, but I've seen him in interviews. You wouldn't think that uh, uh, he possessed this immense literary talent. I mean, he wrote a lot of books or uh, critically acclaimed, but nobody bought them. Right. Uh, and I guess I'm, you know, just a speculation that uh, one day he looked in his wallet and it was empty. And is that why he decided to watch, uh, to write The Godfather? I don't know because I mean, The Sicilian was a, a great book too, and I I bought I bought a screenplay that was a book also that I still own called Seven Graves for Rogan which I think is should be made and I, I mean I don't have the energy to do anything anymore other than what I'm doing just my business is but th th this was uh, the last three days of the second world war and the guy's name was Rogan and he was an officer in the American army and he was being tortured and his wife was captured in the officers' quarters also, and she was pregnant with their with their first child, maybe six, seven months pregnant. And supposedly they were torturing her, and they led him to believe that if he didn't give us information, they're going to kill her, and you could hear her being tortured. And as I pointed out, this was the last three days of the war. So in the third day, he was next to death, and they threw him out in the courtyard, still alive, on a, a pile of bodies. Spin forward, the Americans you know, rescue him, bring him back to health. He's living in New York, and he can't get this dream out of the nightmare of his wife screaming and he has to go back. And the seven men that were involved with this, that's why the book was called The Seven Graves for Rogan. And he went back and killed all these people, all six people that were now in private life, two stayed in the army, but he got to them. That not only was the Germans looking for him, but U.S. intelligence also, because they just made this great treaty, and this guy was over there. Well, long story short, one of the guys, the last one to kill, was a magistrate. And he got into the courthouse and was about to kill him, and they were waiting for him. American intelligence and German intelligence. He runs out of the—they gets away from them in a confusion, runs down the street and runs into this bakery and hides under the counter, a little, little bakery. And he hears this lady talking and it sounds like his wife. And when he looks up from the floor, it's his wife who he killed all these people for no reason. She was alive. And the, like a great story. How come it was never made? I don't. I still own it, but what's even more shocking now, 
a little kid comes from the back who is now four or five years of age was the, his unborn child. I mean, is, is, yeah. is that an opener, Pat, for a writer? Yeah, and I, like I said, uh, how come it wasn't, yeah, particularly after Puzo came down his feet as a godfather, I'm surprised you didn't do it or you didn't sell it. To I was trying to, I was going to do it, but you know, I, I couldn't reveal why, what I was doing in the Vatican. And, you know, the, the film business was so, and, and nobody wanted to do a war movie. I went over, in fact, that's a, a good question because I went over with Liza Minnelli, who just did Cabaret at that time. And they would, I was in Munich, and we were at the red light district all the time. And coming out of there, they were putting a new subway down in Munich, and it looked like the bombing. So we went because, you know, she knew everybody over there. She was such a big star. And we had some of the people that were in production introduce us to the film people there. And I actually thought I was going to get it made because I felt, you know, if I can get the location. And I had a Matt Simber, I remember him. He was, he was married to Jane Mansfield, if the, uh, that whole fiasco, unfortunately. And, um, but he was doing pictures. And he had Moishlin Rickless, who just bought the Riviera Hotel. And his wife was Pia Isadora. And he promised Pia that she'd play the wife. So Marshall and Rickers was going to give him the $4 million. So we're sitting there in this office of the film uh, people that give you the permits. And everything was going great until we said, but what we need to do, and we want to get into production right away, well, the streets are all ripped up because this place takes place the last three days of the Second World War. And they said, we're looking at each other, and I could see their demeanor changing. And Matt said, and we have to hang 15-foot SWAT stickers off the windows. <laughs> they ordered us out of the country, not out of the <laughs> hotel. They wanted to be reminded no, not they still don't. Even, they don't even want to talk about the war. Hey, you know, let, let me tell you just a fast story about the the watch uh, sticker, which was the symbol of the uh, Nazi regime. If you go to Flushing Meadow Park in Queens, I'm sure you, Johnny, somewhere along the line, you've been to Flushing Meadow Park. Okay, the 1939 World's Fair was held there, right? And country has uh, an exhibit, uh, part of the German exhibit with two flagpoles, and on top of these flagpoles are two huge SWAT stickers. They're still there. Really? Yep. No I... one knows that. Uh, if you're riding down the Van Wyck Expressway, which is adjacent to Flushing Meadow Park, and you're elevated, if you look to your right, you can see the flagpoles. Well, you, still... know, you know how many times I've passed that? For two reasons. Going to LaGuardia Airport, Going to yeah, going to JFK, I go that way, and going to my favorite restaurant, Tony's uh, Parkside restaurant, Tony Federici's restaurant in Corona, you yeah. get off right there, and right. go right through the back. It's right there. I got. A, are you sure they didn't take them down? They're there. In fact, uh, I put them in my my first PI novel, Bloodshot Eyes. Right. Eye poles are in the opening chapter. Anybody wants to read the book. And 
But anyway, they're there, and I just you know, the character comments that uh, you know there's a big Jewish population. I was just going to say that too. That... No one ever, you know, no one ever looks up apparently, but they're still there to this day. They're still. But there. the Sephardics, as you pointed out, I mean, they're all over that place. Yep. Now I don't know if that portion of the park is open to the public or not. Uh, I haven't been there. I mean, I, I was a cop in the 110 precinct, and Flushing Meadow Park was part of that precinct. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I haven't been back there for a long time. I passed there a lot, right. uh, you know, when I was going back and forth to New York, and the flagpoles are still there. I'm just wondering if uh, people have access to that area of the park. I'm, I'm unsure of that. But the, all you have to do is look to your right or your left as you're going down to Van Wick. They're there. But, but on the top of them, yeah, are they right that the noticeable? Part of the, the uh, German exhibition, and after actually the World's Fair is over, everything's torn down, uh, and you know the lawns are redone and everything. But those flagpoles, they kept them. I'm surprised they haven't utilized that, because some of the some of those buildings are really attractive. That one yeah. big that one big fountain, with the globe yeah. and all that. Yeah, transparent globe. Right. But anyway, you you being a writer though, and how many books of of, of Mario's have you written, read? I, I read, I think three. I I've read the Sicilian, and there was two others. These were literary works. You know, when they literary writers, if they know what they're doing, they, you know, they always get critical acclaim, but the books don't sell. You know, because right. uh, the average reader wants to be entertained and not have to struggle through a book. Even though the writing is fantastic. I was just wondering what uh, Mario Puzo's impetus was to write The Godfather when he wasn't writing that type of book. Well, I think he needed to, like you said. His, his agent must have said, listen, this is the genre you should be doing right now. Yeah. It had to be, and fortunately... I, I have a good friend of mine who's a, a literary writer. This guy's won more awards than you can shake a stick at. He says, uh, every time I need to feed my family, I write a mystery. You know, they sell, but everything else doesn't. So, right, right. The Godfather has never been out of print. Well, you um, know what the interest, I mean, imagine me, if, if he didn't write that book, what would I be doing today? <laughs> Probably in time somewhere. I'd be locked up somewhere. <laughs> I mean, he must have made millions off of that book. Just the book alone. Oh, it's, I know. I mean, because it never ended. He was getting royalties till the day he died. Now his yeah. family's getting royalties. I'm, I'm hoping they still get it. Because, oh, you get know, it. he had five children. Yeah, well, no. It, uh, the royalties, when the, I believe when the book goes out of copyright, which is something like 75 years, then it's uh, uh, anybody. It's it's anybody's property. So the they they still have 26 years in my, my memory. Well, nah, I'm not sure. That's wow, that's great, Megan. You being the youngest of the two of us, I think you're the youngest. Uh, have you ever read the book itself, The Godfather? I have. Oh, you have. I read it. I actually just finished it fairly recently. I had bought it over quarantine. I bought the 50th anniversary edition, and yeah, I just recently finished it, like a week or two ago, actually. And what's your thought of it now, 48 years later? that this book has been out. You being, you know, a millennium. <laughs> that is my role. 
Um, I mean, I definitely enjoyed it. I had seen the film first and obviously know a lot of behind the scenes aspects of the story because of you and how it played out on film. So I was, of course, picturing it as Al Pacino and Talia Shire and oh, you. Yeah. yeah, so you <laughs> had a you had a visual. But I really did enjoy it. Yeah. No, I'm because some you know someone who is not of the life, you know, Pat Sort on one dimension being on the other side of the law, and I was in the gray area of the law, <laughs> and uh, to have no violence in your life that I know of, or you. Uh, or experienced other than right. on the news, that had to be very shocking to a, a, a girl like you who's sheltered. Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard plenty of stories from you, but for that to have been, obviously it's not a true story, but it's based on real events or real people or influenced by events that actually happened, for that to be similar to people's actual lives is mind-boggling to me yeah just the amount of death and violence and how people so you know either easily let it go or quietly seek their revenge and how that all plays out it's crazy well i tell you in the publishing industry if a writer comes along that has written something uh where he's the first kid on the block basically to write that uh that's what the publishing industry is looking for and Puzo comes along with this family saga of the mob, that was never done before. Uh, no one ever had insight to the mob. And but, it's crazy because there was there was so much detail. Oh yeah. And I mean, every every sentence was an intricate detail about the inner workings of the mafia. And for him to have that knowledge or gain that knowledge and be able to put it into words like that is incredible. And that's obviously why it's such a classic to this day. Well, you know, I, I had, like we were talking earlier, I spent a lot of time with him and a, lo a lot of the conversations were how he got to the Godfathers and he, he let me know that, you know, the, where he got the idea for the Genko olive oil was Joe Pafacci. Joe Pafacci was the, bigger, the biggest importer of olive oil during that time and then his sons were smart enough John and all of them, I know them well. Then they created Calavita. And I saw them just recently, and they were wondering, how did I get, not me, but my company, got to the rights to use Jenko? Some, why didn't somebody else think of that? I mean, because just yeah. because the exposure from that. But he, he let me know because even when he, he spoke, and we all know the line when they had the meeting, and with all the families met after Sonny was executed, and they were they were basically letting him know he never shared his politicians and his judges and the policemen that he controlled. That was Frank Costello. So now you already have two Godfathers that in real life that he got all this material from, and the third one was the humbleness of Carlo Gambino. And he pictured Carlo in his house in Brooklyn with his garden. And I mean, when Carlo got dressed, he's a totally different image. But that's who he was. And so that was the image of Brando when you see him with his grandchild playing with the tomato plants. So 
what I understood was his research, like now that I know how much research goes into things like this, and thank God Pat does it for me, because I would never write a book. But that's how we got the inside, you know. But some of the, the, the one-liners, where did he come up with, you know, a man's never a man unless he spent time with his family. Then he looks over his shoulder at Sonny. I mean, just those nuances in this movie, and it sounded, you know, like a godfather saying it, but he wrote it, Pat. How do you think he got to that? Well, you know, there's something that's called, that the writers call a good ear, which means when people talk, you listen. You know, I, I love to eavesdrop on people. And I like to think that the best part of my writing is dialogue. I write like people actually talk. I have other, I have weaknesses in my writing. That's, that, that's my strong area. And Puzo, that's, that was Puzo's uh, strong area too. He, he when, when people talk, he listened. And the people, I don't know how he, I don't know where he grew up, but I imagine he was around these people yeah. uh, a time, sometime during his life. And he just picked up on the syntax, how they spoke, what they spoke, and he just. And you know, if you're gonna do, if you're gonna do any writing at all, screenplays are all dialogue. I mean, if you have an ear for dialogue, you're, you're you know, you're, you're in pig heaven. I mean, it's uh, it's it, a screenplay is easy to write for somebody that has this ear for dialogue. And Puzo obviously had it, but that's where he got it. Well, I yeah, see, and, and what you just said is so true because me being around. Gambino as a young kid and Costello. When I read the script, it was like I was talking to them. So he had to spend time, a lot of research, or being in the area, and somebody must have made him privy to some conversations. Do you have any insight as to how or where he grew up? Around where he settled, out in Long Island, where he, Oh, yeah? Yeah, I, I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, we have a special guest coming up on our show, the next show, and I'm sure she'll tell us that. And uh, but that's a good question. He had maybe he came. It says from he Man was. I just looked it up. It says he was born in Manhattan. I don't know exactly. Oh, there where. you go. Well, um, but then died on West Bay Shore, New York. Right. Which so, was that Long Island? Yeah. And that's where, I mean, he had the house there for a long time. No, but so there's your answer, Pat. He must have went down to the neighborhood and just sat in cafes. Well, let's assume that way he was born and raised in Manhattan. Was it the Upper East Side, the Sutton Place? No, it was Hell's Kitchen. Oh, that's the West Side. All right. No, Uh, but I'm saying, but even then, no matter, even if he was up in the Upper West Side, a lot of people used to go down Sundays or the weekends to Little Italy. Yeah. There were the intrigue, you know, of Matty the Horses, Umberto's, the, the Ravenite, Angelo's, and these guys used to eat them. I, I could see, now that, now that you brought the question up, I could see him walking around with a pad in his back pocket and just listening. I mean, he's so, I mean, he's not, he's not threatening at all in his demeanor. Pujo struck me as a guy supremely intelligent uh, didn't convey that in his in his manner and perhaps the way he spoke but his mind was like a sponge and all his characters uh, you know we, we can refer to the Godfather because that's the book most people read 
if you read any of his work. None of his characters sound like any other character. They all have their own voice. They all have their own history. And it's very difficult to do on a, on a, on a page, you know, uh, the written word to be able to do that. And there, there, therein lies his talent. Uh, in addition to being a very good writer, he had that ear. Well, the, and, the interesting thing about what you're saying, I hear that about our book and you, because you, you were able to capture that. All our characters and the people you wrote about. I love listening to people. You know, I, you know, for instance, I understand that when people talk, uh, they generally don't start a sentence grammatically. They start a sentence in the beginning of the sentence. They leave words out. And a lot of writers don't get that. But if you listen to people, you'll, you'll, you'll understand that. you got to convey that on, on the page. And Mario Puzo was a master of that. Mm. There's other writers I can name, but nobody ever heard of, so I won't go into it. But uh, if you can do that, if, if you write fiction where there's a lot of dialogue, or what, what we write, you and I, Gianni, is called, there's a, a genre called creative nonfiction. In other words, you want to write a, a bio of somebody like, you know, you and I did of, of, of your life. Uh, you want to make it interesting, put dialogue in there. While everything is true, all the, all, all the events are true, you have to create dialogue which would have happened within that uh, a certain portion of your life. How you would have talked to Frank Costello or how uh, uh, how the uh, how, how people spoke to you when you went to Italy. And right. Start that into the story. I know, but uh, you, you mastered it, so that's great. Yeah. But um, well, one other thing I want to ask is is um, when the book was finally being adapted to screen, what was Mario like on the set of The Godfather? How involved was he, and what was his role? Oh, he was totally hands on, and Francis wanted him there. You know, Francis basically he got credit for the screenplay with Francis. They both have on screen credits. Screenplay was written by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo. I think maybe Mario even got a, a premier building over over Coppola. Hey, yeah. I give points to Coppola because you can really, uh, when, uh, right. a writer's book is adapted, and part of the contract is you can come on the set and make suggestions. Oh, I'm sure, because he was there every day. He wasn't there for nothing. Well, they basically tell a writer, not in, in, in Puzo's case, of course, they basically tell the writer, see that chair over there? Sit down, keep your mouth shut. If we got a question, we'll ask you. Well, no, the, the thing there, what, the thing, and again, that was my first movie set. I've been on numerous ones after that. And fortunately, like Striptease was a book. Um, Seabiscuit was a book. I've done a lot of movies that became books. And the writers were there, and that was it. They, they said, no, you know, we'll call you. Don't, because first of all, you know, we have 123 minutes, and I know you like that one scene, but we're not doing it. Sometimes it's for the expense, the budget. But I think, I think the, the, the privilege, and Coppola, see, Coppola was, I mean, his father was a musician, Carmine Coppola. He played every feast. He's been, he was a true Italian-American, Francis, and he loved his heritage. And... Uh, when he got this piece of material, and he fell in love. Imagine this as you, I think it was like second or third film, and he's doing The Godfather. It's uh, well, just very smart of him to realize that it, it isn't all about Coppola. 
You know, he, he didn't he, he didn't have that kind of an equal where he said, you know, he would tell the uh, the author, Puzo in this case, sit down, shut up, it's my movie, which is what most most of them do. And, and you know what else I noticed because I, I was I'm just, I was like a sponge in the desert because I wanted to it was my first set number one. And why did I didn't come here to go sit in my trailer for three hours? I was wandering yeah. around, especially my first scene was my wedding. So I felt like I was the star of that wedding with me and Connie. And, you know, we had 350 extras. And at that time, I'm 25 years of age. I'm, I'm getting every girl's phone number there is, whether she's married or not. I was like nuts. But, you know, and, and, and the other thing that I thought Francis was smart about, like Richard Conti, who played Barzini, everybody at the table in my wedding, other than Barzini being the actor, nobody at that table, there was five or six guys, they were all really Columbo's guys. They were real guys. You know, Butteress to Chico, I knew them. But, you know, it's, uh, which again, I think is a, a tribute to Coppola. Yeah, absolutely. Creating, he, he's creating, uh, you know, a replica of who the real people are. Did he actually direct those guys? Was he a hands-on type of guy with, with the... With you know, he, he did the same thing with me. He said, Johnny, you know street, so I'm not going to tell you how you would talk to somebody, but remember that's who you have to be. Don't come on and try to act because the, the audience will see it. And, and, you know, and he said that to everybody, even at the wedding. The wedding, everybody was so stiff. You know, they're looking at the camera and all that. And then until they, they started pouring red wine and everybody got into a party atmosphere, <laughs> you were at a wedding. But it was great, you know. But uh, here we are. I mean, the guy is passed. And not, not that, you know, egotistically, I don't know what I'd be doing in my life because I'm, I'm the kind of guy that we all know now. I mean, give me an inch, I'll take two miles to get about a foot. And I've been able to do that with this movie. I made a career out of one movie. I mean, I made others, but this is the movie that's we're still capitalizing on. You are. So it's, um, it's been a blessing. Thank yeah. you, Mario in heaven. Well, when was Thank the goodness time? for Mario. When was the last time you saw him? I'm sorry? When was the last time you saw Puzo? I saw Puzo not too long before he passed on, actually. Because we had the big anniversary, the 25th anniversary in San Francisco. And uh, Coppola wanted it up there because, you know, him and uh, George Lucas opened uh, Solotrope Studios up there. And uh, Puzo was invited. And then I used to see Mario a lot in Vegas, unfortunately, <laughs> losing all his money. <laughs> all that money he made, he gambled away. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And everybody loved him because he was Mario Puzo. And he was a player, so he was invited everywhere. It's craziness. Nice. But we have a special guest that uh, next week that Ma Megan cultivated. And we can't, we are not going to, well, why don't you tease them a little bit, but we have somebody coming on that. Yes. So in continuation of our topic of Mario Puzo, um, next week we're going to have a special guest who was a longtime companion of Mario, whom I'm sure will have plenty of stories to tell about him and their relationship and 
writing and all of those fun things. So looking forward to having her on next week, our first female guest, I right. might add. But the interesting thing, and uh, my understanding, she was with him till he died. She was, yeah. I, I can't wait to hear that. She was for the last 20 so 20 some years of his life, she was with him. Wow. She, so she, saw, him, a lot of good stuff she saw him lose a lot of money in <laughs> 25 years. All right. Well, it's time to say goodbye until next Wednesday, obviously, or whenever you listen to us. As long as you keep listening, we need your support. We're growing leaps and bounds throughout the world, and we can only say thank you to you. I know Pat wants to say a few words. Yeah, hey, I mean, uh, you know, uh, perhaps the, uh, the film put you on the map. This book put me on the map. Well, you were, you were heading towards it. I'm glad I was able to be a part of your success. It took me 22 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> and I have you to thank for that. No, I appreciate that. And Megan now has us to thank. She's uh, <laughs> leaps and bounds. She's becoming a star. Right. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Today's show is being sponsored by Cordelione Fine Italian Food Products. This sponsor really means a lot to me. Cordelione Fine Italian has taken the heart and soul of the Godfather films and created a line of food products that include pasta sauce, balsamic vinegar from Modena, Italy, Genco Extra Virgin Olive Oil from Sicily, they created delicious pasta sauces, marinade, tomato basil, arrabbiato, and my favorite, Clemenza's meat sauce. You will be amazed. You will think your grandmother made the sauce herself. CorleoneBuyingItalian.com. That's CorleoneBuyingItalian.com. Our second sponsor tonight is very close to me personally because you know how I love to dress. La Cosa Mia will be coming soon. This is just a teaser. Each week we'll be bringing you more ways to get in touch once their website is up. This line of clothing is from all over the world and I'm sure you'll want to wear it. Hi, Patrick Picciarelli here. Before we get to our listeners' emails, a quick word about the new fiction book series I've launched. Private investigator Ray Yale tackles his first two cases in... Bloodshot Eyes, and The Pop Line. Both books are in paperback and are available on Amazon.com. I've been a PI for 30 years, and these books are based on my cases. Enjoy. All right, well, we can't forget about the mailbag. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was signing off. Okay. You were. All right, let's get to it. So, let's see what I have here. First, we have a message from Jill. Jill says, I recently found your podcast and I'm totally hooked. I have always been fascinated by stories of the mob and the stories I have heard you tell have been so informative. I want to thank you for the education and entertainment. I just listened to season two, episode 25 regarding the Central Park Five. I am astounded at the miscarriage of justice for Linda Fairstein and the others that have been destroyed by the serious mistruths about this. I am disgusted by the payments made by the city of New York and by the state. I live in Minnesota, and in 2020, my state has been center stage on the anti-police front. I am not in agreement with that at all. I wholeheartedly agree with Pat in that the majority of officers are good and fair. 
the internet and social media have perpetuated the negativity. First, I want to thank you for putting this in in one episode, and second, to Pat for your passion and commitment. Well, thank you. Well, that's very nice of you. Well, Pat, you should, you should answer that question. I have this thing. I have a lot of things. Uh, one involves Halle Berry. Well, then again, both groups and stuff like that. Uh, I have this fantasy that one day, if I ever win an Edgar Award, which is awarded by the Mystery Writers of America for the best mystery, the best true crime, the best whatever, get on stage, I'm going to take that Edgar, and I'm going to say, this is for Linda Fairstein. I'm going to leave it there and walk off the stage. Wow. Oh, that'd be wild. That'll be powerful. Because I just said that, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> I'm sure you can, and I hope it happens. Well, I'm I'm more interested in Halle Berry. I didn't know you were fantasizing about her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I when I when I, I I equate the word fantasy with quite a few things. Okay. Okay. Well, that that's another show in itself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are we ready for the next one? This is from Brian. Brian says, Gianni, if you had to choose, would you rather be feared or loved? Wow, that's a good question. Well, I, you know, I've had the privilege. I have both of those lives. So some people fear me and some people love me. So I don't want to pick one for the other. I'm enjoying both. <laughs> it's a good balance for you, I oh, think. Oh, yeah. That's what works. All right, next is from Andrea. Andrea says, any truth to the story that your mentor, Frank Costello, would dine with Vincent Giganti? Was doing what? Dining. Oh, yeah, of course. Three days later. Three days later. Three days later from what? From shooting him in the, in the elevator. The, the, oh, the, the, oh, they're oh. still saying that, you know, that was his first hit. He was trying to make his bones. And that's when, you know, the Genovese family, Vito, and uh, Vincent Giganti was uh, a young kid. And, you know, I, and I've had this conversation whenever Frank wanted to talk about it. He says the hat threw him off to where he should shoot him because he shot him in the hat band, but that's already above where it should be. When you think, you know, the hat band's two or three inches above the ear, so it only grazed the top of his head. That's interesting. I never heard that before. What's that? That's interesting. I never heard that before. Well, I, no one could hear about it unless you were sitting with Costello. That was his. That, that was his theory about it. And then, you know that's why he would never testify against him. Number one, and what nobody realized, he was he wanted to step down. Vito didn't need to do that. He they Meyer and Witt, they were putting together called the syndicate was where he wanted to go. He missed, I mean, the amount of money Costello had by the 40s was ridiculous. Ridiculous. So. All right. Next is from Andrea. Andrea says, Johnny, did you know Leonard DePippo? He was a friend of Mo Dalitz. Um, I, my relation with Mo Dalis was on a very high level because Mo, for people who don't know, was Maya's man in Vegas. So anybody that had any pull, I don't know this, you know, I, I don't know that guy. I mean, I used to go okay. see him at the 
Las Vegas Country Club, which he lived on, and I, my meetings with Mo, like were so many other people, were maybe five minutes. We didn't hang out for five days. I didn't want to be seen with him, and he want to be seen with me. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. All right, next one is from Soren. Soren says, would you interview Sammy Gravano as he's out? He made an interview with Patrick Pet David. No, I wouldn't. First of all, I never knew Sammy. I knew of him, as I pointed out so many times on our show. I, I left the neighborhood, let's say, early on in my late teens. Sammy Gravano was just making his bones on Staten Island at that time and in Brooklyn. All right. I knew of Sammy after he was Sammy the Bull. All right. Next is from Anthony. Anthony says, where was your favorite place to be on Staten Island when you lived there? Well, I, my, my time was always like South Beach. I mean, I spent a lot of time in South Beach and uh, because there was rides and you can take the, a nickel ferry and go to it, you know, and it was that kind of a place. And it was very heavily populated Italian area. And, you know, when, when they moved out of Mulberry Street, they were buying bungalows and making them all year round homes, which was a mistake because they were truly bungalows on the beach. But uh, to me, I, I like South Beach. Good memories. All right, next is from John. John says, Johnny, did you know Jackie Leonard from the Desert Inn? Very much so, Jackie Leonard, yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time in the Desert Inn. That was, you know, that's uh, the Purple Gang. That was, uh, you know, well, I don't want to get into that, but I knew everybody there. And, the, you know, Wilbur Clark, who was the, the, the builder, and uh, they, they, well, too many inside things. I love the Desert Inn, which now we all know is the Wynn Hotel. And that was one of the hotels Howard Hughes bought first. But yeah, Jackie Leonard was a good, good guy, man. Jackie Leonard had his tongue cut, didn't he, in a, in a dispute? I, um, I think it was supposed to come out, but it didn't. <laughs> oh, yeah. That doesn't sound pleasant. No. Yeah, he he had an odd way of speaking. Uh, he's a comedian, but anyway, right. odd way of speaking. And the story is that uh, he pissed somebody off. And he got cut. Cut his tongue. Right. Yikes. I loved all, all right. those guys. Henny Youngman. I mean, Shecky Green. That's how Don Rickles started. That was a whole clique that's unheard of today. Mm. All right. Moving on. Next is from Michael. Gianni, what is your biggest regret in life? If you had one do-over, what would it be? I wouldn't have spent all my money so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was bad. Uh, <laughs> That's the only reason. I didn't think you were going to be able to come up with one. No, it bothered me. No, I thought my life was never going to end. You know, so I'm buying cars and houses, and I'd walk out of houses and leave me behind. But, uh, you know, because it was crazy, crazy times. But, you know, two people that destroyed it all in that world was Tony Spilatro destroyed Vegas, and John Gotti destroyed the thing that we knew is, you know, La Cosa Nostra, or Morta. It was all, you know, 
It's I never was in it, but I was always enamored by it. But mm. to, you know, you can't raise that kind of money anymore. You know, to make two hundred dollars a week now is hard. <laughs> it's for the IRS. That last speech. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next is from Joe. Joe says, "Does Gianni remember the old restaurant called La Maganette in New York City?" Are you kidding me? La Maganette on Third Avenue, and and they, I think the family owns a casino now. They left the city, and Louis Dome, Louis Pacella, had a big say in that place. They had a beautiful showroom down to, downstairs. No, I love the La Maganette. I think the La Maganette now became a great uh, Mexican restaurant. Classy place. Very mobbed up, though. All right. Well, there you go, Joe. Okay, last one for tonight is from Mike. Mike says, what is Gianni's advice to aspiring actors? What should we focus on most? I, I mean, the craft itself. I mean, today... I mean, it's so hard to because, you know, I watch television, I don't even know who these actors are. Even in some movies, I don't know who they are. You, you got to really be an actor. I mean, the only actor I think that I met early on in his first movie was the Titanic. He really stayed with it. There was a very few young guys, like Tobey Maguire, when we did Seabiscuit. These kids... But even Toby McGuire now, he's not working. I don't know it's, if it's management or there's such a variety of new people coming along all the time. And Do you I, think it, it, it's important to network and make connections and it's a who you know kind of thing? Or well, I mean, if I, just if I was an actor t today, I would make sure I don't have an agent. Don't want an agent. Why is that? Because Why the agent's... Oversell you, and you find out that you meet people in the street. They wanted to hire you, but they wanted telephone numbers for you now because you had one good movie, and, and and the agents are there. I always said to agents, you know, Lincoln freed the slaves. I don't need one because hmm. he only had them for a year. You can only sign you one, one year, then the next time they can sign you for two years. So they, they needed that ten percent, and when you had a big movie. I've I've known so many people's careers were destroyed by agents, hmm. but um, it's a different business now. All right, well that is all I have for tonight, boys. Well, thank you so much. Thank our audiences. Keep listening. Keep send those cards and letters. Good night, Pat. Keep them coming. Okay. Good night, guys. Good night, good night. Megan, have a good night. Good night. See you next week. Or hear us next week. Both. Both. She walks like an angel walks. She talks like an angel talks. And her hair as a kind of girl To my mind She's my kind of girl She's wise Like an angel's wise With eyes Like an angel's eyes 
and a smile. Like Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, HollywoodGodfatherPodcast.com. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, Giannirusso.com. You can also visit Amazon.com for a listing of books Patrick Picciarelli has written. Remember to follow us on Instagram at HollywoodGodfatherPodcast, as well as leave us a review on iTunes. If you'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails and voicemails. Good night. That face just knocks me off of my feet Her little feet She's really sweet enough to eat She looks Like an angel looks She cooks Like an angel cooks And my mind In a kind of world To my mind She's my kind of girl To my mind she's my kind of girl